Cynthia Laughlin is a newcomer to state electoral politics, but she's been observing the politics and policy changes of Northeast Missouri for some time. After January, she'll try to implement her vision for the region as the senator for the 18th Senatorial District. The Republican from Shelbina joins us next on the latest edition of Politically Speaking. So let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, a candid conversation with the Show Me State's biggest political newsmakers. I'm Jason Merzenbaum. And I'm Joe Manish. Elections should be about your accomplishments. What have you done to qualify you for the position and why are you qualified to run? I'm going to push back on these regulators. I'm doing this for the people. I was encouraged along the way, not just by my family, but by a lot of teachers and professors and knew when I was in college that I would run for office someday. We're very excited about the prospect of having some more free market solutions. Even though after the conversation, I still might not agree. We want our listeners to get a real sense of what drives these people. They're actually people with a story to tell. Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Lufius Alfa Romeo, offering test drives of the Alfa Romeo Giulia, the 2018 Motor Trend Car of the Year at Lufius Alfa Romeo in Fairview Heights. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. I am taped from Jefferson City, Missouri. I'm here with our special guest today. Cindy O'Loughlin the state senator-elect for the 18th Senatorial District. Before we go into your, your life story and you know your views on issues, just give our listeners a reminder of what the counties that encompass the 18th District are. Well, it starts at the Iowa line. So you have Schuyler County, Scotland County, Clark County, Knox, Lewis, Adair, Macon, um, Shelby, Randolph, Marion, Rawls, Pike, Lynn, Sheraton. I think I said Randolph. I think you did. Yeah. It, it's not, it, I guess ha- Senator Hageman's is probably the biggest senatorial district, but yours probably has to be a close second. It is a, a massive district, probably because the, the counties don't have a lot of people in it, with the exception of maybe Marion and Randolph. Is that fair to say? Well, Adair. Marion and Randolph would be the most populated counties, yes. So tell us a little bit about yourself, kind of how you got involved in politics, because I know that even though you were a first-time candidate, I think you've been a keen observer of Nemo politics for, for quite some time. You know, really, I guess I could go back to the days when Bill Clinton was president, and I really wasn't involved in politics at the time. In fact, he came to Hannibal to a Democrat Days event, And a friend of mine was going and invited me to go, so I did go. So I think that might have been my first outing to a really actual political event. And then as he progressed through his presidency and some of the issues that happened, um, you know, I'm I'm a mother, so I have four sons. And at the time, I just thought, I don't think that, I think that we need a little more, um, morals in in the office of our president. So that's when I became involved. I, I was just going to say, um, as many people who listen to the show know, I constantly harp on the fact that Northeast Missouri used to be a Democratic stronghold up until maybe like 8, 10, 12 years ago. Um, and when I say stronghold, I mean, by that time, it was like competitive. There was Republican areas, but you still had Democratic state reps, you still had Democratic state senators, and you still had Democrats on a county courthouse level. 
So would you be fair to say that you were a Democrat at some point and then became a Republican after Bill Clinton? Or were you just sort of non-political and that kind of awoke you to the Republican side? Well, I'd say I was non-political. I mean, I've always felt that if if you're a married person raising a family and you have a budget and you have to make ends meet, that's when you when you start paying your own bills, that's when you become more conservative. So I really wasn't a Democrat, but I just wasn't involved. Yeah. So what made you decide to run for the 18th district seat this past cycle? It was a highly competitive Republican primary. You ran against three sitting state reps. You had never run for office before. Um, it, was a, it was a really fascinating race from afar, even though we did do a, a story on it because St. Louis Public Radio does go into Northeast Missouri. What made you get into it, and what was your general thoughts and experiences about running in that crazy primary? Well, to begin with, um, I have come to Jeff City to try to advance legislative proposals that I thought were good for the average middle class working family. And it's kind of difficult when you're on the outside to have a lot of effect. And I knew that Senator Munslinger was terming out. And as I looked at the field, I knew that three state reps would be running. Every one of them has been in Jefferson City for several years. And in the case of uh, Representative Walker, he was actually in the General Assembly in the 80s. So these were all people who had served many years, and I did respect that and actually had supported them at various times in the past. But as I survey the landscape and given my age and I look at my family and I look at my sons and my grandchildren, I think we have some things that really are going in the wrong direction. And I don't have aspirations for any other office. And I thought, well, if if I would agree to run this time, because I always said I would never do it, maybe I would have a chance to come to Jefferson City and maybe I would be able to implement some of the uh, procedures that a lot of us small businesses, if we're successful, have to use. And I don't see those principles really being implemented here in Jeff City. So there were a couple of things that I noticed that kind of caused some friction. So this primary was going about for at least, I don't know, part of the year when the Greitens uh, fiasco was going on. And obviously, Representative Walker took a pretty hard line stance that he thought that the governor should resign. Obviously, he did. This is all retrospective. But you actually came out very publicly saying, you know, he should not resign, that you that you kind of maybe tapped into maybe some pro-Greitens sentiment in Northeast Missouri and kind of differentiated yourself from the other candidates, which seems like a counterintuitive strategy. But how did that factor into the outcome? Or did you talk to voters that were really upset with the way that hall went down? Or was it a situation by the summer where they kind of forgot about it and they were focusing on other issues? I think that a lot of voters in our area uh, were fans of Governor Greitens, and they felt that he was sort of an outsider coming in maybe not beholden to anyone, and that maybe he would implement some of the changes that they felt needed to be implemented. So when the issues arose and the legislature, um, you know, immediately started investigating and doing all, going through all the process that they did, first of all, I didn't feel that he was really treated fairly, uh, either by the prosecutor in St. Louis or really, in some respects, by our House Investigative Committee. I, I had some disagreements with the way that went. 
And I know a lot of people in the legislature, and I, I thought, well, you know, if people looked at everyone here with as fine-tooth comb as they have looked at Governor Greitens, um, you know, maybe there'd be several other people here that wouldn't be here. So I felt it was a little bit wrong, and I think a lot of people in our area felt the same way. Obviously, it's a moot point. He's gone. Governor Parsons there. The other thing that I think was notable from afar is I think like a third-party pack that had a lot of trial attorney money attacked you, if I'm not mistaken. I want to make sure that's correct, first of all. Um, and really hard-hitting ads against your business that got written about in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Um, it obviously wasn't effective because you won, but it kind of also showcased that um, a lot of plaintiff's attorneys did not want you in office. How did how did that kind of affect things? Because I could see that also backfiring, that they're running negative ads against you, and it could actually bring more people into your corner. Um, I, I mean, I, I'm interested in your take on that because I'm sure that that was probably one of the less fun parts of the campaign. Well, it really was. I mean, it was kind of terrible because they um, came out and started running our business down, talked about uh, an accident that an employee had had, kind of, you know, it, it's like a lot of political ads. You know, it might have one little shred of truth in it, but the rest of it is all not true. And there's really no way to refute it. And I think that in the end, the result of it was, you know, our business has been there 70 years, and a lot of people know us. Not, and what, what is your business, by the way? It's Leo O'Laughlin Incorporated. It's a trucking and ready-mix concrete business. So my husband and I bought it about 26 years ago, and we've operated it since then. And I think that people, you know, kind of weighed out why, why all of a sudden our trial attorneys spending hundreds of thousands of dollars to defeat Cindy, why are they talking about this business, which is very reputable and respected in our part of the state? And I think it did drive more people into my column. So I think it really was a strategy that didn't work. So let's talk about the results you won, obviously. Otherwise, I don't think I'd be talking with you right now. But I was sent kind of a, a map of the results. They were really fascinating. You won a bunch of counties outright. And in a lot of counties that you didn't win, you still came, I think, in second in a lot of them, which I think actually gave you a pretty comfortable win in a four-person race. I think you got, I don't know, in the mid-30s or something like that, maybe high. high. Ten points above everyone else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was not really that close when you think about it. Um, what do you think? What do you think was the, do you think the key was the fact that you weren't an elected official and didn't have a, a voting record and that may have been kind of an appealing thing for people in, in Northeast Missouri who have, who I know have just been inundated with politics for like a, a millennia right now. I'm, I'm curious about that. Well, I think people like, liked me because I am an outsider. I mean, the outsider label kind of, you know, is attractive to people. They feel, they send people who say they're conservative to Jeff City and then they make decisions that they feel are not conservative at all, and they don't really understand that. I know that one of my weaknesses sometimes is bluntness. And, you know, I've sort of moderated that a little bit, but not a lot. I think people want to know where you stand, and they want you to know where they stand. And they, they really value honesty, and I think they value that we are business owners and we 
operate our business in a way that ensures that we can continue operation and that we can continue to employ 45 families. And I think that um, that was an attractive thing for them. Before we get into issues, and there has been a lot of focus this election cycle on, on female candidates for office, and oftentimes it gets centered on Democratic candidates for office. But you will be the first woman to ever represent this Northeast Missouri-based 18th district in the Senate. Um, I, 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 don't, I'm, I know that there are three other women in your caucus. For a while, there were no Republican women uh, in the Senate. Um, does, that, does that designation mean anything to you, or do you kind of just ran as a candidate and not a, a female candidate? You know, I think a little bit too much in our society today, at least I think this is how people view it in our area. They want the person that they feel is most qualified. So I never went around and said, you know, I'm the first female. If I'm elected, I'll be the first female senator from our area. And I really don't focus on that at all. I think that we should always look at a person, look at their experience, decide, does that fit the position the best? And if it does, vote for them. I don't care, you know, about any of those other factors. And I, I'm old enough that, you know, that kind of thing really wasn't talked about much when I was younger and we just did what we had to do. And so I think, I think that holds true now. I think we just do what we have to do. And um, I think women have certain strengths. I think men have certain strengths. I think the two are very complementary. So I don't focus on that. All right, well, now let's focus on issues and the issues that you're gonna focus on in the Senate. I'll ask you very simply, what are gonna be your major priorities? You're in a big Republican supermajority you're going to have the ability to get a lot of things done. And Northeast Missouri, as you know, often needs some help on a lot of levels from, from the state. So I'll, I'll, I'll start with an open-ended question. What are going to be your priorities when you're sworn in in January? Well, there were three that I mentioned for the last 15 months. Workforce development. We, we really have a crisis in workforce. So we need to rethink our education strategies and education reform is the second point. These two kind of go together. Well, they do go together. Um, I think that our education system has become such a top-down system, and local areas were supposed to control their education choices and their, their local schools. And I think a lot of that control has been taken away by the federal government, and then it comes through DESE, and you get another set of top-down instructions. And eventually, then it makes its way out to, you know, all of the schools out state. And um, I think I could make an argument that some of those methods and things that we're doing in the schools are, are not working. Mm -hmm. So education reform, workforce development, and entitlement reform. Um, in, our, in our entitlement system, we're spending millions of dollars, and we are creating generational dependency. I have no problem with helping people who, through one way or another, have gotten into a situation where they need help. But I think where we fail is we lock them into it. We do not give them a path to independence, and we don't give them a path because if they're working, we have what's called the cliff effect. So if a person makes a dollar over an artificial boundary that is set, they take away all of their benefits. So then the person really can't afford to work, and they end up sometimes quitting their job. So, for instance, I met with nursing home administrators. They have a lot of um, single mothers working, but they can only work 20 hours a week. They would work more if they could, but if they did work more, then, 
you know, medical care for their children or whatever, all of those things would be taken away and then they wouldn't be able to continue on. So I'm not sure why we take millions of dollars and create generational dependency on the one hand in young people who could be working and on the other hand, and I'm speaking of Medicaid funding right now, we have elderly people in nursing homes who just got a cut in their reimbursement amount, and a lot of our nursing homes are facing fiscal uh, Armageddon, really. Some of them have already gone bankrupt. So that makes no sense to me. I want to touch on education for a second, because there has been pushes, especially by Republicans and some Democrats, for the quote-unquote education reform you're talking about. A lot of it sometimes centers in places like St. Louis and Kansas City, but I often, I think it also is relevant to rural Missouri, too. And often what you find is the, op the opponents often are rural Republican legislators who often don't really want to rock the boat when it comes to, I'm, I'm, I'm going to just say vouchers, tuition, tax credits, those types of things. Um, so it seems like you're kind of breaking the, the stereotype, so to speak, that you're a rural legislator, but you're going to kind of embrace that agenda I just talked about. Is that fair to say? It is fair to say. And, you know, when I when I traveled around to the 14 counties, I would ask business owners, I would ask people that I met in hospitals, whatever, wherever I was, and I would talk to them about their local school, some of whom were teachers, retired teachers or something along that line. And I would say, how is, how is your educational system working? Well, common core math is always a topic. Uh, we, we teach math in a, in a way that really is absurd, in my opinion. And if you cannot do math, you can hardly do anything else uh, that you need to do to become an independent adult because math is very important in figuring how much money you have, what your bills are going to be, those kinds of decisions. So even though Common Core has supposedly been replaced, it's been replaced by Missouri Learning Standards, which are are patterned after Common Core, so you still have the same thing. So while people will tell you this in private, they don't like to come out publicly and talk about it. I kind of see my role as one of facilitating that conversation, and I have taken some heat from some education establishment groups who say, well, you don't support public education. Well, that's nonsense. I do support public education, but I don't support methods that are failures. And I recently saw that our ACT test scores in the nation are the lowest they've ever been. That's just one example. I want to ask you about this because, and I don't want to over-personalize this, but I moved from St. Louis City to St. Louis County because the special education resources in the city are vastly inferior to St. Louis County, and I have a son with uh, special needs. What was told to me when I was talking about this topic is the resources in rural schools are probably infinitely smaller than the ones in the cities, and I'm sure that there are also issues of resources um, in, in places that you represent when it comes to special education. Did you hear that when you were talking to teachers? And what kind of, if you are hearing that, what type of solution do you think you as a legislator can bring to that? Well, sure. I mean, I think autism is one of the biggest things that we face now that maybe we didn't a few decades ago. And really, basically, if you need um, attention to that particular issue, you can go to the Thompson Center in Columbia, but it takes like a year and a half to get in there. 
So that really, to me, is no help at all, almost, because what do you do for that year and a half? Um, I do know that what we did, I did serve a term on our school board, and we had joined with other schools as a consortium, and we would hire special ed people or people who could help uh, students with certain disabilities, and that kind of works. But obviously, we don't have the tax base or the income to support full-time people in every school. So it is an issue, but it does bring to mind that we are funding education now at record levels. And um, I think that the first thing I would like to do is look at how we're spending the money. Because it really doesn't matter how much money you pour into something if the methods that you're using are not working. You're just going to get more of something that you don't want more of. And this, I think, is where you kind of run into a little resistance sometimes because people who are experts, you know, want to tell you that uh, we're the experts, so we're going to decide how you do it. Well, my response to that is, but we're paying for it. And I'm talking to parents, and I'm talking to retired teachers, and I'm talking to people who say that it's not working. So... I tell people as I travel around, when you have all the authority and money located in a distant location like Jeff City, but you have all the responsibility in a place that is far away, then that system never works very well because the people who have all the money and authority really are in a position that they actually never fail because there's really no accountability, there's no tie, <clears throat> excuse me, tie to the outcome. But the people with all the responsibility feel all of that on their shoulders, and yet they feel they don't have appropriate input. So I'll use our company as an example. Since we do have trucking, we have drivers come in every morning, we have a dispatch of all the different things that they're to do, and if they go out to do something and we've tried to give them every single detail that they'll need, if it doesn't work, they're going to get on the phone and call us immediately, and we're going to change it. So I feel like there's an awful lot of push down from here out to the schools, but there's not much input back. And I think that needs to change. Let's talk about transportation, which I think is a huge issue in Northeast Missouri. Uh, I talked with your predecessor about this, Senator Munslinger, mm -hmm. and I think that he was kind of more in the camp that, you know, let's get more money by raising certain taxes. Obviously, there's been two tax increase proposals in the last four years, a sales tax that failed miserably, and Proposition D, which just failed a couple days ago. I know that there's been kind of a, an idea with some more conservative lawmakers of maybe redirecting some general revenue to transportation, but I know that that has resistance because general revenue goes to a lot of things that a lot of people want. Is that kind of the next possible proposal when it comes to transportation, um, or do you have kind of a different idea in mind that maybe could break some of the mold from the other proposals that have come forward? When I look at a $28 billion budget and I realize that different departments are given whatever amount of money they're given, um, the legislature entirely focuses on input. Now, someone from a private business perspective, which is me, if I have money and I want to buy something because I know I need something done with that, I really look at the end product. So I, I feel like focusing solely on input really leaves out maybe the most valuable part of 
determining how you want to allocate your budget, and that is what are you getting for the money you're spending? So I'm not favorable to asking people to spend more money when I feel like we do have places where we could change how we handle things and we could save, in some cases, millions of dollars. So it will involve making some hard decisions, but I do think sometimes people who come here and want to stay here are really reluctant to address issues that they know are going to create maybe some negativity or maybe people won't vote for them the next time. And I don't really feel that way. I feel that you look at what you want to achieve, you look at what you're spending, you say to the different departments, this is what we expect to achieve. Working with them, of course, but we expect to see some accountability from you. And accountability brings about a whole new perspective from people. And I think we're missing that here. So as far as the roads are concerned and the bridges, we have some roads and bridges that are, you know, really in terrible condition. But I think that we have the money to fix them, but we will have to make some hard decisions to do that. And I'm willing to do that. One of the proposals that's been brought up that has some pushback from local officials is turning over some state roads to counties. And obviously for counties like that you represent, they don't have a huge tax base to maintain those roads. And I think that uh, when that proposal was brought up by, I think, Senator Sylvie, someone like Senator Munslinger probably stood up and said, no way, we're not doing this. This is just going to probably cause local entities to have to increase their taxes to do the roads. I'm sure that that I'm sure you've heard about that type of idea, but I'd be interested in your perspective on it, given that you represent a lot of counties that can't necessarily like turn around and dump a lot of money into this. So what's your take on that? Well, our area, one of, one of the other big reasons I ran is that we're losing population and we're losing our tax base. And of course, everything that you provide as a service is going up in cost. So I'm not ever going to be favorable to asking our counties to take over the road system within their area. But the place that I would look would be to start right here in Jeff City, because we do have a fairly large bureaucracy here, and I'd like to see some information about what we're accomplishing with that. And perhaps if we could cut some of that, we could push more money out to the rural areas and they would be able to do more things. Here's an example. Our sheriffs house people who are bound for the Department of Corrections, and they are supposed to be able to be reimbursed a certain amount per day that the prisoners are held in the counties. But in reality, sometimes they are reimbursed, sometimes they're not. It's always months later, and sometimes it's only a partial payment. I don't understand that. I don't understand if the state is making a commitment to do something and, and, you know, really it is their responsibility. Why are the counties shouldering that? It's that kind of thing that I think you get when you have a, a fairly large bureaucracy that does control the money. And then you have, you know, little small counties and towns and they feel sort of helpless to combat that. And I just think that's wrong. One of the things I asked at the a Senate press conference was whether the Republican majorities may take another look at the redistricting portion of so-called clean Missouri or the minimum wage increase. The minimum wage increase is a statutory statutory change, so the legislature could hypothetically 
bring it up and make some changes to it. Clean Missouri is a constitutional amendment, so you'd have to put something up on the ballot. I'll start with Clean Missouri first because I know that a lot of uh, Republicans, especially in rural areas, really objected to it because they feared that the way that the new system will draw districts could connect you know, disparate areas, so maybe rural to exurban or exurban to urban. Um, what were you hearing from constituents about that, and would that be something you would want to revisit um, going forward, or is it a, is it something that's kind of low on your priority list, given what we've talked about before? Well, we already have a fair redistricting process. You know, we have people equally divided between the two parties. They have to come together. I think at least 70% have to agree on the final. And then if that, if you just can't reach that agreement, then it goes to a court where judges make the decision. So I felt that Clean Missouri was sort of a Trojan horse. So they threw in a little bit of ethics reform because they know that people, you know, are always for ethics reform, even though they may not even understand how that affects the process. And then underneath of that is is an idea of drawing districts in such a way that, frankly, I feel is designed to try to get our maybe our minority party to be able to win more. Well, I feel like if you're you know, if you're going through a fair process in the beginning and people vote, you have as much opportunity to make a case to the people as the other side. And I think that's what you do. You make your case, people vote. I see no reason for, you know, a largely Republican area to be all of a sudden connected to something that's distant from there to try to engineer the results. I, I think that's wrong. And as far as I'm concerned, yes, it needs to be looked at. And what about the minimum wage increase? I think the minimum wage increase is, is an issue that people don't really understand the far-reaching effects. Most of the people who are working for minimum wage are either teenagers or at the very, very starting end of a, of a job career. So when you go into a business and say, okay, now next year this price is going to go up, no one is taking into account the effect that that has on the marketplace. So it may raise the cost of the product or service that you're producing to the point that consumers won't buy it. So what's the end result of that? No one has a job. Is it possible as a business owner, because this would be $12 an hour by 2023, that by 2023, that may be close to what the minimum wage was anyways, and it may not be as harmful to businesses as, as people are warning? Or do you think that that number is going to be difficult to ingest no matter how far along the line it is. Well, I just think it's, you know, it's too hard to tell. Who knows what the economy will be like? Are we going to go out to maybe a little coffee shop that's maybe got one employee because that's all they can afford, but they have a decent little business going? And are we going to say to them, you know, this might make you have to shut your business down, but we think that there's, you know, benefits for others out there? Who makes that decision? I think the private market is a wonderful mechanism for determining what people want, what price they're willing to pay, and it's a self-correcting mechanism. And every time government intervenes in the private marketplace, then you have an offsetting problem. So I don't know what, what the wage would be, what would be a decent wage in 2023, because what if we have, you know, a recession or who knows what? So you tie the hands of the people who are already facing a lot of things that they are not protected against, and you 
you take away their options. And ultimately, I think you take away people's jobs. This is probably, I'll, 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 I'll end this interview with a kind of off the wall question. Um, you know, Josh Hawley just won the U.S. Senate seat. There's going to be a vacancy for attorney general. And who knows, they move, may move one of the current statewide office holders over and there may be another vacancy. Um, I know I don't think you're an attorney, but do you have any people that you would like to see replace Josh Hawley as attorney general that uh, maybe maybe different from kind of the conventional Jefferson City picks? Are are you just going to kind of let Mike Parson make that decision and focus on being a state senator? I think the governor will make a good decision. Um, you know, of course, I know people that are good attorneys, but I don't know if they have any interest in being the attorney general. So I feel confident that he and his staff, he has very good staff. He has good communication, I understand, with, you know, the legislature and people all around the state. So I think he'll make a good decision. Has he, has he reached out to you yet? Have you talked with uh, Governor Parson? I did talk to him when I won the primary. I haven't talked to him yet this you know, since then. And my real final question, how do you think he'll be able to handle his first term, first year as governor with a with a, the legislative session? Are you confident that there'll be synergy between the Republican legislature and the, the executive? Because that was a problem with the previous administration. Even if you, you didn't agree with the way the whole uh, investigation went, he clearly had really big problems working with the Republican legislature. People are a lot more optimistic about Parson. Well, I think that he has enough um, experience. I mean, he's been in the legislature, and I think he has good people around him. And so I compare that to my becoming a senator. I, You know, I'm a private business person. I've never even thought about being a senator, really. So I have as a chief of staff, Paul Kurtman, who... Who, by the way, has been watching us the whole time. He's a former uh, a guest on the Politically Speaking podcast, and I'm, I'm glad to see that you're still going to be in the mix by the way. I'm waving to him. Nobody can actually see what I'm doing, but continue. I think that one of the things that you have to do to succeed at anything is you don't have to know everything, but you have to know what you don't know. And I want to succeed, not not for myself, but for the people in our area. And so knowing that Paul has lots of experience, he's very ethical, he's honest, he has every um, attribute that I think is important, and he can be a good advisor to me. And so I think that's what you have to do when you come in from the outside. You don't come from the outside and say, okay, Cindy's here now, so we're going to change everything we do and do it the way she would like. I wish we would do that, but we won't do that. So you need someone to kind of help steer the ship. And I think the governor has done a good job since he started. I mean, he has established good relationships and and I think the whole legislature feels a positive momentum. I feel like we'll accomplish things. Well, Senator-elect, I really want to say thank you for being our first post-election guest. I have a deep affinity for Northeast Missouri politics, so getting to interview the future senator for Northeast Missouri is a true honor, just as it was an honor to interview your predecessor, Senator Munslinger. So for all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow us on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum and STL Public Radio. I don't know if you're on Twitter, but is there any other way for people could get a hold of you once you take office or before you take office? Either, you know, phone number, email, Facebook, Friendster, MySpace, Carrier Pigeon, anything else? Well, I do have a Facebook page. I have a personal page that I 
talk with people all day long on, so they can they can reach me through there. I'm I'm not on Twitter, you know. Sometimes I can speak a little bit too quickly, so I thought maybe Twitter would be a <laughs> a bad idea for me coming just out of the gate. <laughs> so I don't have that, but um, you can get a hold of Paul. Um, he's he's on Twitter. Yeah, I think well, at, yeah. at, at Paul Kurtman, by the way. And I'm sure that once you uh, get your office and phone, that will be on the Senate website. Sure. So until then, until next time, so long. <laughs> <laughs>